Welcome to The Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour on CIUT 89.5 FM and also on a few, several, many. A bundle. An abundant pile of community radio stations around this this land or on uh, internet, podcast, hookups, ethernet stuff. I'm David Franklin Erwin Hostetter. I'm Stephen Christian Erwin Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Elizabeth Corlatour. Thanks so much for tuning in with us this week. So happy to be back with you all. You, Lauren, have just returned from COP26, which I'm sure was a magical adventure in a dreamland of beauty. <laughs> and uh, we're, gonna, we're about to talk about your experiences at COP, uh, and then we're going to discuss perhaps shutting down Canada again, maybe. We'll see what happens with uh, Wet'suwet'en and the solidarity rallies that are happening as uh, they attempt to defend their land against the RCMP and our industrial state. And then Stefan's going to interview Laura Stewart, who is a writer and an environmental campaigner. Correct. Climate organizer. A climate organizer. About her wild and adventurous attempt to file a micro-petition. An amazing tale of one woman's attempt to be listened to by her government. And really just about how bad our transit system, intercity transit system is. So, Stefan. Yes. What would you like... Lauren to tell us about her experience. Yeah, I mean at COP twenty six. Yeah, I mean first the question is just sort of like your overall experience. I, I believe you previously mentioned it as overwhelming and bad, but perhaps a further elucidation could be done. I had the first nightmare I've had in probably a decade while I was in Glasgow because I just like fully woke up in a cold sweat, freaking out my colleague who I shared a room with. And I mean, like, that's not a direct indictment of COP, but like it is indicative of like the headspace one is in whilst one is there that like I can be almost 30 and wake up like, oh, my God, I'm going to die in this room right now at two in the morning from a nightmare. Again, I haven't had nightmares in a decade anyway. Yeah, it was pretty brutal. I've been to a couple of cops before and by no means are they are they ever an easy space to navigate. They're not. They're it's always this incredibly toxic combination of like really long working hours, existential dread because you're constantly faced with the reality of climate change and like being over caffeinated and overtired at the same time. So like that's kind of like the baseline for what cop is normally. But there are usually good things that come out of it. There's usually like a lot of really awesome relationship building and like camaraderie that comes from it because you're thrown into this space with other civil society players and there's really good opportunities to meet new people and do really cool stuff together. But this cop, like I'm sure everybody has heard, like it's probably like ad nauseum at this point that this cop was nasty because of like some really poor planning and obviously because of COVID. But it was like, the negotiating spaces are always exclusive to folks with government or party badges as they're called. But like, this was even more so even folks with party badges were like really limited in numbers. Despite the fact that they had two years to plan this conference, it felt so on the fly. And so kind of like ad hoc and like decisions were being made all the time and being rescinded all the time. And so often you were just met with like a sea of people in hallways on laptops watching the proceedings happen on this like really poorly functioning online 
platform. It was like for, for better or worse, it was almost like a, like a weird YouTube channel that you could like tune into like the meeting or the negotiation that's happening in room X, you can watch on your laptop if you have the right credentials. So in addition to just the normal problems that arise with COP around like dealing with the fact that like climate change is the scariest thing in the world and the people who are dealing with it are so highly privileged and so disconnected from reality that like COP usually sucks, but this year was far, 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 far worse than normal. And then you try to factor in all of those various issues around like you had so many people who worked so hard to be there, folks from the global South who had to pay exorbitant amounts of money to be there, who had to test over and over again, who had to book accommodations in a city that simply didn't have any hotel rooms left only to get there and to be faced with the reality that you can't get into the negotiating spaces you need to, that you can't get into rooms with fellow organizers and fellow civil society members because, because those rooms don't exist and they're so capped with capacity. So it was like, it was this brutal storm of door after door being shut in people's faces. And I'm speaking specifically to my experience as a, as a member of civil society. There's sort of like different categories of people who are a copier. If you're accredited to be in the space, if you are allowed to be in the space, you're either there on a party badge, which means you are at least accredited through some sort of government body, or you're there as an observer, which means you're part of civil society. So you're part of like, I don't know, a nonprofit or a grassroots group or something like that, or your media, or you're like a, a staff member. So again, I'm just speaking to my experience as a civil society person, but yeah, it was uniquely brutal this year. That being said, there was some amazing, amazing organizing that was happening outside of COP. There was an incredible grassroots uh, people summit that was put together that hosted hundreds of conversations and workshops with, I'm sure, thousands of people. There was an incredibly big climate march that happened on the weekend that I know for those that were able to go is incredibly empowering and incredibly energizing. So obviously there, there, there is always good that comes out of these spaces, again, in those relationships that, that can be built. And the momentum that's generated, um, I honestly think that's one of the most important things that comes out of a COP at, at any year is the is the momentum and the ways in which it sort of brings climate to the front and center of the global conversation for at least two weeks a year, if nothing else. Before we move on to your sort of f feelings about the outcome, because I, I am interested and I would like to hear that sort of your take on that. Was there anything that would not, you think, would not have made the sort of national news or the sort of international news that was something you thought was really interesting or different or should be known to people? So something that was really awesome to see is that, again, I haven't been to COP in a few years, so I, I haven't necessarily seen the progression over the course of a few years. But whether or not it was ignored or paid attention to by like the quote unquote powers that beep, there was a really awesome showing of indigenous organizers and indigenous communities and delegates are finally getting some of the funding and getting the badges that they need to get into those spaces. So there was like, obviously, there have always been indigenous people working really hard to like claim that space in COP, but this was a year where like it was really visible if you knew how to look for it, of course, and if you had the time to look for it. So that was really, really awesome to see is is all of the amazing Indigenous and um, people of color who were there from civil society. And that was fantastic. That being said, at the same time, something that was made painfully obvious was the fact that like 
I think the largest, technically, if you were to like group civil society delegations by like X number of people from the environmental nonprofit world, X number of people from indigenous communities, blah, blah, blah. The largest population present was from oil and gas companies and lobbyists, despite the fact that there were very few governments that accredited oil and gas companies there was still a huge showing of that particular community, if you can call it that, at COP. So like I said, there's some really fantastic BIPOC organizers present. There's still so much more work to happen in order to make sure that oil and gas companies and lobbyists aren't dominating those spaces and aren't swaying those conversations too much. One last question before we dive into the news. Your feelings on the outcome both the text and some of the other announcements just you know whatever whatever things you think really are important to highlight there were some really big flashy announcements made throughout cop um from the canadian government and and from others and those big fancy announcements aren't necessarily reflected in the negotiated text or in if you're if you're thinking about Canada specifically in any of our domestic policy at this point. And I mean, obviously, there's a bit of a lag period between announcing something big and exciting and actually seeing it enacted in, in, in policy. But I think that's the thing. Like, this was a cop that that more than usual felt like a bit of a, a media circus. And that actually isn't meant to disparage media at all, but is but is critical of government because it was the government saying, oh, my God, we're doing this. We're hosting another press conference and we're announcing this and another press conference. We're announcing this and Canada's making such a good showing and look we have a an environment minister who's a who's a former activist and isn't that so good and we're we're on the right side of history and then again when you look at how we've actually shown up in these negotiating rooms and the policy that that's reflected back at home those there, there's a bit of a of a a disconnect there and that was sort of my biggest takeaway is that we can make all all the flashy, big, beautiful statements we want. But if it doesn't actually show up in the text, it, it doesn't amount to much. So for instance, like this isn't Canada specific, but a number that you kept hearing thrown around is 1.8, 1.8, which was the idea that if, if every pledge that was made at COP were to be followed through on and enacted, we would be at 1.8 degrees instead of like the previous, like, I don't know, 2.7 or 3 point something. And everybody kept point or not everybody, but a lot of, um, governments and, and and high up officials kept pointing to that being like, look, this is progress. We're 1.8. We're going to be at 1.8. And it's like, yeah, that's if you implement every single pledge you've made. And all of these pledges, again, aren't currently actually reflected in any formal text. So um, and it felt like there was a lot of spin happening for not a lot of actual really positive outcome. And again, that that doesn't mean that people weren't trying hard. There were people in these negotiating rooms until the bitter end, until 24 hours after the gavel was supposed to fall. Like um, COP is supposed to end on Friday evening and it instead ended like really, really, really late in the day on Saturday evening. So so there were people there working really hard and fighting tooth and nail. But at the end of the day, the negotiated text isn't as strong as you want it to be. And there are some things like Article 6 that are still being debated. That conversation will have to hopefully be wrapped up next year. I, I shouldn't say hopefully. Article six is a really weird beast and we can dig into it on a future future episode. It deals specifically with carbon markets. And it's like, well, you don't want to shove through an argument or a, a deal there just for the sake of doing it because it's kind of make or break. Anyway, that got weirdly weedsy and I don't actually have time to get into it. But one day soon, we'll talk about Article six and the implications of it. To highlight exactly that point you're making about all of the words and then not mentioning actions, our news is really entirely about the re the return of uh, or the RCMP to Wet'suwet'en lands. 
Um, and so right after the break, we'll dive into that. February 2020, indigenous rail blockades sprang up all over Canada to hamstring supply lines and halt the economy in order to force the Canadian state to change its attitude towards First Nations. COVID-19 interrupted those blockades. Now, a similar movement is being called for again by the Wet'suwet'en, who were the flashpoint for the first one, which became more complex and encompassing as it spread across the country. For two months now, Wet'suwet'en land defenders have been occupying the drill pad site at the headwaters of the Wet'suwet'en River to prevent coastal gas link from drilling underneath it. In an effort to enforce traditional Wet'suwet'en law on lands they never signed away in any treaty, defenders tore up the access road last week after warning the company. But the company has tended to leave its workers in the dark about the Wet'suwet'en resistance, and their workers were not evacuated, and according to one worker who spoke with the Tai, many of them don't understand why there is resistance in the first place. Some 500 workers were therefore stranded as the Wet'suwet'en enforced their eviction order. The RCMP then set up an illegal exclusion zone last week to prevent supplies from reaching the Wet'suwet'en camp. The RCMP then conducted raids on the camp and have arrested around 32 people, including some journalists, for violating a court injunction that states that no one is allowed to disrupt Coastal Gas Link's work in the area. The RCMP entered unceded Wet'suwet'en territory with assault rifles and attack dogs and without a warrant, and axed down the door to the cabin that was housing Wet'suwet'en matriarch Slato and the daughter of Chief Was. Ten people of those arrested remained in jail in Prince George as of the 23rd. The pipeline in question is a liquid natural gas pipeline leading to the coast for export. Natural gas is sometimes called a bridge fuel toward a carbon-neutral energy grid, since it burns cleaner than other fossil fuels. A recent report from Climate Analytics, however, is calling natural gas the new coal. Here are two points made in the report. One, natural gas was the largest source of fossil CO2 emissions increase in the decade 2010 to 2019, which was an increase of 42%, and is responsible for about 60% of methane emissions from fossil fuel production and about 70% of the projected increase in fossil CO2 emissions under current policies to 2030. Two, Analysis of 1.5 degrees Celsius compatible scenarios from the IPCC special report on 1.5 degrees Celsius shows unabated use of natural gas in primary energy supply globally should already have peaked and be declining globally, and that it needs to drop by more than 30% below 2020 levels by 2030 and 60% below 2020 levels by 2040. 
This means that we need to slow down the use of natural gas rather than ramp it up in order to avoid mounting climate catastrophes. Regarding liquid natural gas specifically, the report reads, quote, Liquid natural gas is a very carbon-intensive fuel source, and taking into account emissions in production, manufacture, distribution, and gasification, including methane leakages, may have a greater greenhouse gas footprint than coal-fired generation when used for power production. Because of its carbon intensity and cost, the International Energy Agency Net Zero Emissions Pathway projects a rapid collapse of the liquid natural gas trade at the global level, which will be felt differently in different regions. This means that demand for liquid natural gas, which is the fuel that will flow through the coastal gas link pipeline, must swiftly decline if we're going to reach quote-unquote net zero emissions, which is what governments everywhere are now saying that we're going to do. The Coastal GasLink project is being run by TransCanada, or TC Energy, in partnership with Royal Dutch Shell. Royal Dutch Shell has recently decided to drop Royal Dutch from its name and move to the UK in order to avoid taxes after the Dutch government ordered the company to reduce its emissions. And here are some selected quotes. Uh, Chief Wass said, quote, From what I understand, there's a military-style raid that happened on the drill pad site and that machine guns and sharpshooters were pointing right at the cabins. This is Gidimdan territory. The Unisotan Solidarity Brigade wrote, quote, For the third time in three years, the Wet'suwet'en have faced militarized raids. The RCMP, with full military force, armed with assault weapons, snipers, and dog teams, have forcibly removed us from our yinta, ripped us from our families, terrorized and smeared us, bulldozed and burned down our dwellings, and desecrated our ceremonial items and spaces. All for Coastal GasLink's fracked gas pipeline, which is a death sentence for Wedzin Kwa, our sacred headwaters, and our people, and a carbon bomb for this planet. Gidimdan clan matriarch Molly Wickham uh, recently said, quote, This invasion once again speaks to the genocide that's happening to indigenous people that are trying to protect our water for our future generations. It's illegal even according to their own means of colonial law. We need to shut down Canada. Our Haudenosaunee relatives have been arrested, violently arrested. They've been removed from our territories. They're removing Wet'suwet'en people from our own lands. They're planning to drill under Wet'suwet'en and destroy our sacred headwaters. We need people to act. You need to act where you are now. Shut down major infrastructure. Do whatever you can. Rally against the investors. Shut down the investors to this project so that it's very clear that indigenous people will not stand for the genocide that's happening on our lands and to our future generations. Before I get to some places that you can join to heed that call uh, from uh, Molly Wickham, I want to note that if you're the kind of person who wants to give any credence to some of the, you know, to the RCMP or to the invasion that we saw, which I'd be blown away if you are that person and listen to the show, but maybe you are, understand that what the video also shows is multiple members of the press identifying themselves as press only to be still arrested and then held for three to four days. Meaning that all of the stuff that they had shot that would have been the news about this were silenced by the RCMP, who then lied. The the announcement, which is amazing, the, the number of times police will lie knowing there is filmed footage of them, which will prove them wrong, shows how... Um, 
how much they believe they are not accountable to anybody because they straight up lied about about this knowing there was footage of them of them doing this anyways and yet they did it and are now trying to keep these people and these land defenders from being able to go back to their lands. So they're both trying to stop the media and these land defenders to go back. And these, these this, this is the traditional territory of these people. And they're being told they cannot go back because they were arrested during this during this raid. And so just in case you want to give some benefit of the doubt, I would encourage you don't. If you wanted to heed this call, though, there are still many ongoing places and you can keep finding them. One is happening in Toronto on Saturday at 12.02 Bloor Street called Solidarity with Wet'suwet'en Land Defenders at Saturday at 1 p.m. There's another one in Thunder Bay uh, on Saturday at 3. And generally, uh, Dylan Penner's Twitter page, who we interviewed a few, we- a few weeks ago, he's been actually tracking every in- every action that he can find, which includes things in Sherbrooke and Australia. So if you're looking for one, it's a good place to keep checking. Yeah. um, And I just wanted to add for folks who are maybe in Ottawa or in the Ottawa region or see value in coming to uh, our quote unquote nation's capital in order to to do some protesting against what's happening and what's what. There's a protest rally demonstration action happening um, on uh, this upcoming Sunday, that's November the 28th at 1 p.m. at 90 Wellington. Um, if you're in Ottawa, 90 Wellington is directly across from uh, Parliament Hill. Like basically like there's a direct line from like the peace flame or whatever the frick it's ironically called um, to, to 90 Wellington. So uh, 1 p.m. this Sunday, the 28th. We'll see you there. And now we'll go to a music break and come back with Stefan's interview with Laura Stewart about her adventurous attempt to get this, uh, get her petition read. Welcome back to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country. Or maybe you found us on the podcast, which you can be found anywhere podcasts can be found, including at our website, which is greenmajority.ca. We are here with Laura Stewart, writer, climate organizer, and former oil field environmental worker who just returned home from a climate conscious trip from Regina to Winnipeg. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. Glad to be here. And so this is actually 
a real treat because so often we have people come on the show and they talk about their initiatives or what they're asking Canadians to do. And then we very rarely get an, a follow-up to someone actually doing it. And so a few weeks ago, or maybe even now a month or two ago, we had Dylan Penner from the Council of Canadians come on the show and talk about micro petitions that they were trying to get out to push for a just transition in Ottawa when they came back. And that is sort of the impetus for your trip. So maybe you can just, by way of introduction as to what led this to you, how did that factor into your trip and what inspired you to do this in the first place? When I saw the petition that the Council of Canadians had put together, I was immediately excited because it seemed to me the first time I had seen a direct call to our government to take action on the scale that is really needed to address the climate crisis. And I hadn't been involved with the Council of Canadians before, but I decided that this was something I had to support and promote in whatever way I could. I started in figuring out how to get signatures during a pandemic with very few people meeting face to face. The way the micro petition works is that it has to be physically signed on paper. And that gives it a particular power in Parliament. It's a very specific tool that's used in Parliament. So as long as there are 25 signatures physically on paper, then an AMP can take that petition forward in the House. So I started in thinking, well, how will I get these signatures? You know, I could talk to family and certainly I did that. But the first place that I thought to go was to my church network because I've been working on climate action mostly through the churches. And so I thought, well, at this time of year, they're having drive through fall suppers. And maybe I could catch people as they're picking up their turkey and fixings and ask them to sign the petition. And so I arranged with my local congregation and I did exactly that. And there I saw the power of, of building community because these are people who know me, who they've been seeing me on our Zoom meetings talking about the climate crisis. And so it was not new to them. And a lot of them just right away said, sure, I'll sign that. Awesome. And then did that get you all 25? No, I was then looking around for where can I get some more? I had already contacted my MP and said, I think I'm going to have enough. So could I have a meeting, please? And then I looked around and reached out to a few people. I was in touch with the people at the Prairie Spruce Co-Housing Cooperative. And what they did was they just took the petition and put it out and let the residents in their co-housing project know. And I think most of them signed it. I, I was really impressed with the immediate support from almost anyone I asked. There were a few people at the drive-through who just said, no thanks, and drove on. I, you know, I got a few sort of looks like, how dare you interrupt my celebratory drive with the thought of this controversy. But yeah, the, the support was really strong. And that, to me, was a really encouraging and surprising indication that there is a lot more support for climate action than we maybe assume, or even than there, there was even as little as a year ago. If my memory serves, the ask at that point was to take this petition to an MP who would then bring it to Parliament. 
how, how would that experience go for you? I did not get to meet with my MP. The staff there told me that they would ensure that the petition was read in Parliament. And I wasn't quite sure what that meant, but I decided to go and take the petitions to the office. They were suggesting that I just send them, but I wasn't willing to do that because I wanted to get a real sense of what would happen with them. So I took along Mac Findlay, who has organized with Fridays for Future Regina, and we went to the office and there we got clarity that they would do something to ensure that the petition was read in Parliament, but it would not be our MP who would be standing up to read it. And they said, very likely not any Conservative MP. So that was the answer that I had actually expected. And here in Saskatchewan, we have only Conservative MPs. So the next logical step would be to say, okay, where's the nearest non-conservative MP where I could take this petition? And that was Winnipeg. Awesome. And so that sets the scene for this trip that you decide to take. And you obviously could have easily decided to fly there or just hop in your car and drive there. But you decided that given the nature of this, you wanted to experience what it'd be like to live your values and try to get there in as carbon understanding as of a way as possible, which leads you into this whole trip. Yes. So we in Saskatchewan lost our intercity bus service a few years back. And more recently, the Greyhound bus service has disappeared. We were told that private industry would step in and, and fill those routes. And that's sort of happened. But I contacted a bus company that I thought might be running between Regina and Winnipeg and asked them about their COVID protocols and got no reply. I was actually in Winnipeg by the time I discovered that bus route was suspended altogether. So anyway, hearing no reply from them, I thought, okay, it's the train. And the train no longer runs through Regina because we've been seeing more and more cutbacks on any kind of intercity public transit. So the nearest station that I could get to would be Melville, Saskatchewan, and that's 150 miles away. And I was thinking, you know, could I walk? Could I bike? Well, I had just bought a bicycle in August, an e-bike, and I was really loving that e-bike. But my trips around town would be on the order of 7, 10, maybe 15 kilometers. So 150 was an altogether different story. The longest trip I had ever made on a bicycle was about 60 kilometers, and that was decades ago. So I thought, I can probably do 60 kilometers in a day. Maybe I could break this trip up. And I started looking into pouring over the map figuring out what could work. And I decided in the pandemic, can you, are there any hotels available? Some, some of these towns don't even have hotels. And so I had to start phoning friends. Could I stay with you? And looking for gear so I would be warm enough. And, but it just, it engaged me. It really energized me to try to figure out, could I make this work? And of course, the the corollary to that is, would it work for 
an average person trying to figure out how to get from Regina to Winnipeg? Obviously not. But it, it was exciting as a project to see if I could make it happen. Yeah. What I like about that too is that question of could we do it is a question I feel like we haven't even really asked ourselves in terms of climate change. I feel like we're still at the process right now of nibbling around the edges because like the trip is going to be hard. You know, you force out your own trip is going to be a difficult trip. I'm certain it was not the easiest time for you, but, it, and that is going to be true about climate change as well. And at the same time, you don't know until you start trying and you do get energy from actually trying to solve the problem for, you know, Absolutely. engaging it fulsomely does come with energy. And so I, I love that analogy, that, that sort of combination there. So you said the scene. What was the first leg of your trip? How did you, how did you start out? I actually started out by going to a theater production in Regina by young people. It was two people that were on stage in this. And then they interspersed it with some film pieces. It was a mixed media theater event. And the young people were very young and the films featured children. The title of the event was called The Last Children. And the idea was that a flood came and just sort of took Canada apart. And these children survived because their parents made a boat go on and they ended up living on a lighthouse. And we meet them in the play when they're old, but they're still children because they never had an opportunity to really join an adult society. And I thought it was a brilliant production because kind of set aside all the questions about is climate change real and how bad is it going to be? And it just looked at from the perspective of children, what, what does this future mean to them as what they can look forward to in their lives? So that was a fascinating send off for my trip. And I didn't realize until last week just how poignant that would be as we then watched the floods develop in BC. But I took off from there and stopped at the old railway station in Regina, which is now a casino, and had a picture taken and then did a, a little short leg of my trip just to, to get going. And so I rode as far as Emerald Park, which is almost still part of Regina now. And that, that was my first leg. And then the next day, I really appreciated all the gear that I had bought for the trip because it rained uh, when it wasn't snowing. It gone a little nicer when the, the snow stopped stinging around my eyes and it was just rain. And I made my way to a truck stop and had a little rest at Balgoni and then rode the rest of the way to Fort Capel. And that, at that point, I knew that I could make this happen because that was one of the long legs of my trip. My husband came out to check on me. He made an excuse that he had to go to the cabin to check on something. <laughs> so he drove out and brought me some donuts and made sure I was doing okay. But Basically, the trip was unsupported. It was solo on the bicycle between Regina and Melville. And so yeah, how many days did that take? Three, three and a half. 
that first short leg into Emerald Park and then three rides after that. So I stayed with a friend's mother in Fort Capel and then with a good friend outside Belcaris and then rode into Melville the day before my train was to depart. And so that sort of is leg two, but I'm curious if there's anything else that sort of comes to you about that three days of cycling. You are trying to find a way to use low carbon transportation to get from two relatively major cities. It's like it's part of this, right? Like it's, these are not, it's Regina and Winnipeg. These are not small cities. They are capitals. Like they are really places. And yet still you find yourself having to take a three-day bike to get to a train stop to then take a train. It speaks to the lack of infrastructure, really, and the lack of transportation options. It certainly does. And I noticed on the return, which we'll get to later, that highlighted even more how fragile our transportation system is because that train was the crucial link. And because of the floods in BC, it didn't run back again. So yeah, it, there are other ways I could have traveled. Obviously I could have got in a car. Probably I could have got a bus to Saskatoon and then taken the train, but that's a long way around. So yeah, basically a viable intercity transportation link just isn't there between Regina and Winnipeg at the moment. Yeah, and you can only imagine if that's not there, how many people are being left out in the in, in the their own versions of the cold because their smaller places are not being connected. Again, these are it's you're trying to get to Winnipeg. That's the hub. I presume everything comes from there, that area, right? So it's yeah. the fact that you still couldn't figure it out really speaks, I think, to the brittleness of that. And so while you were biking, I think you had sort of mentioned before we started taping was some of your experience being so close to the train station and the CN rail lines and all the freight traffic. Can you give us a sense of what impression that gave to you? Yeah. So waiting for the train in Melville, I was there for several hours waiting because at that point on the rail line, the via train is often delayed by waiting for freight. So I had to be there at one o'clock and I think I got on the train at sometime after three. And meanwhile, I watched numerous freight trains go by. And normally I don't see that traffic. I noticed it on the first night of my trip, actually, as I was riding out to Emerald Park, I passed by a, a transshipment station where there are huge gantries that move the boxes, the shipping containers between trains and trucks. But most of the time we don't see that freight as part of our day-to-day -day lives. We see the, the products in the stores or we see the products in the stores, but we don't see the freight moving across our country. And to sit there by the tracks and watch those trains go one after another and see how long they are, how much freight goes by in each train was really eye-opening for me. Yeah, I know that was one of the things that people were really highlighting when the, the flooding disaster in BC struck about how much people don't understand is actually transported by train and how many things, it was something like billions of dollars a day of goods would not be coming east because of that broken trailing. So you might've seen the last few trains that go by there in a bit of time because of this. Yeah, 
I spent uh, a couple of days also in Rivers, Manitoba. I decided to do a stop over there because my, my father grew up in Rivers. And also I wanted to connect with climate activists in Brandon. So Rivers was the closest to Brandon. And again, I spent a couple of days staying in a hotel right beside the rail line. And in fact, that hotel serves mainly the rail crews. I heard them saying that they're busy all the time because of the crews. The other business that they do is incidental to that. While I did the stopover in Rivers, I had my bicycle with me, but it no longer had electric power because the policy at Via Rail is that electric bikes can't go on the train. So I had a couple of exchanges with the customer service before they agreed that I could take the bike if I left the battery in Melville. So the ride from Rivers to Brandon was without the battery. And I had tested the bike without the battery. I thought, yeah, it's, it's hard, but it's doable. It's a big, heavy bike with no power at that point. But I hadn't anticipated you combine that with a heavy load of luggage, a headwind, and a highway shoulder that's graveled, so far more rolling resistance. And I set out to go to this climate rally, and I spent the hours just watching the distance shrink far slower than and the time I had remaining. I ended up hours late for the climate rally. And that was the point where it really sunk in for me how much energy goes into just moving ourselves, overcoming the rolling resistance and the wind resistance and all of that. When you're just biking along on the e-bike, it feels pretty good. When you're biking without the motor, you realize how hard the work actually is. Yeah, for sure. And I can't help but hear that story of not being able to bring an electric bike onto via rail as just like yet another example of the ways in which we are not building our systems to prepare for this kind of travel. Like e-bikes are one of the biggest booming industries. They are perhaps one of the most important revolutions in transportation happening that people are not really talking about because of the fact that you can go these long distances and they are supportive and they are low carbon and they're small. If we put even half the money we're putting in electric vehicles into e-bikes, you could probably see such a huge transformation because of the fact they have so many other uses. And then we don't connect them to these other transportation modes because of these weird reasons or rules. And it's, you had to leave your battery behind in what it's like saying we can't have wheels. Sorry, we got to leave one wheel back and then carry on. You're right. It's not <laughs> let people use the tools they've brought. Yeah. A friend actually commented that there are enormous batteries in the locomotives. So surely there's some way that they can make it safe to take your bike battery on the train. Exactly. Yeah. They just haven't decided that they are going to invest the time or energy to do so. And so they're just going to make it impossible, seemingly, to move with the bike battery like that. So now, unfortunately, missed this climate rally. I presume you hopefully got back to the train in time to catch the train to Winnipeg. Yes, actually, the way I got back to Rivers was by electric car, because I realized that this trip 
in reverse was going to be even worse because it was almost all downhill into Brandon. It was being almost all uphill back to rivers and the wind had turned around. So I would have the headwind again going back. So my hosts in Brandon graciously offered to drive me with their electric car. And so I got to experience that mode of transport as well. And think about that. The car weighs as much as 62 of my bicycle. So it's got to move all of that. The, the battery is enormous compared to the bike. I think it's 66 kilowatt hours in that car. And the bike is 0.4 kilowatt hours. And they don't have a hugely different range. The car can go four times as far, but that's nothing like the factors of weight and energy use that we're talking about. So yes, an electric bike is a really revolutionary technology if we can just work on the ways to make them work and sure we can't use them very well in winter some people do my husband is commuting through this winter but still there's seven months of the year that they can be the primary form of transport yeah exactly so you make it to Winnipeg. I'm hoping now you now you that you get back the electric car gets you to the train station train station gets you to Winnipeg how does that go well, once I got to Winnipeg, I had a little more time to work on contacting MPs. And so I targeted the Liberal MPs. I particularly wanted to talk to Jim Carr because he's our, or was, when I first started planning the trip, he was our special representative for the Prairies. And I thought it would be fitting to talk to him about getting representation for those of us in Regina who actually want strong climate action. I also spoke to Terry Duguid's office because he had been endorsed as a climate champion. And so what happens is you reach out to these MPs offices and, and then you don't get a reply. So you call them again. And over the course of the time that I was in Winnipeg, I was getting signals that I probably wouldn't get to meet with these MPs. In the end, there was some movement. I think because we started organizing people in their constituencies to collect signatures and there was some media coming out. And so I did eventually a new call back from Jim Carr's office saying, well, okay, yes, we will take a look at the petition. But the final decision was that He's in a time of transition and it just isn't a good time to be taking uh, a petition from outside his constituency. And likewise, Terry Duguid's office told me that. Where I did get a meeting was with Leah Gazan, uh, the NDP MP for Winnipeg Centre. And so that was where I had expected I would get a meeting. And I was pretty excited to finally, you know, get to the culmination of all of this and meet an actual MP. And she took a look at the petition and said that she loved all of it, except the piece about Indigenous rights, because it wasn't strong enough. And this was a first for, as far as I know, for the Council of Canadians, for all the contacts, from all these people bringing petitions to their MPs, this was the first time an MP said, this is not strong enough. 
And that was another big learning for me is the need to not just learn about Indigenous rights and say you're addressing them, but really engage people from the beginning of your project to make sure that you're seeing it from that perspective. Because we don't, as people who are in the colonial mindset, we just don't see it the same way. And I, I said to Leah Gazan, I said, I keep learning this over and over again, that we can't take these actions without considering what they mean for the ongoing struggle to have Indigenous rights fully respected. Because things that we think are actually helping that may not go far enough to come up to the standards that they are striving to protect. And so will this petition make it to the House of Commons? I'm still waiting to hear back from Leah Gazan. She said she would consult about whether she could table it. It will make it one way or another. There are other MPs who have said they'll take the petition from anyone whose own MP won't take it. And they'll just keep bringing it forward one batch of signatures after another. So it will go forward in some way. I'm still hoping that it may go forward from uh, Leia Gazan. That makes sense. And so that's obviously quite the effort you put in to make this trip happen and to learn a fair amount clearly from your trip as you've tried to move this forward. And so we can talk about sort of your ironic ending to this, as you alluded to earlier, which was having to get back being, you know, messed up by climate change. But before we get there, I'm curious if you can tell us about if you've learned anything from about the scale of the challenge that we face to make low carbon transportation a viable alternative to people who apparently want to move between capital cities in the prairies, but also hopefully anyone who wants to make intercity travel possible. I really hadn't expected the physical encounter with the energy demand to be the learning experience that it was for me. I knew intellectually that we have an enormous distance to go, but to bodily experience it through struggling to bike against the wind and the gravel and through spending days next to the rail line watching all that freight move. I think that part of the challenge we have is to make that real for people. That is itself part of the problem is for people to see just how huge a task this is. And because it's huge, how urgently we need to start on it now. 2050 sounds like a long way away, but if you're building rail connections or gradually getting people used to using public transit, these kind of things take time. And that is part of the intense urgency that we have to be working on this problem now. For sure. And so... By way of beginning to close this story, can you tell us a little bit about that trip back and the irony that came out of it? And then also as a final sort of closing question, you know, what are your takeaways? Yeah. So the 
concluding leg of my trip looked like it would be the easy part. I just get on the train. I'd been watching the forecast and seeing more and more snow forecast. And so I had conceded that I would probably have to have my husband come and pick me up in Melville. And then as I was just getting to my meeting with Leia Gazan, I got a phone call from Via Rail saying that my train was canceled. And with my phone battery dying, I scrambled to get my husband to go to work and find an alternative for me to get home. I knew that there were one-way rentals available. And much as I hated to do it, I asked him to book me a SUV because I needed to have the bike fit inside it. And after I met with the MP, I went to the car rental agency and picked up this SUV and drove home that night through fog and freezing rain. I had to go via Melville to pick up my battery. I got in at two in the morning and it took uh, a day or so after I got back before I realized that my daughter and her husband were in BC for a wedding during all of this. And they had quite a adventure waiting for highways to open so that they could make their way out a big long roundabout trip to get back to the airport where they had flown in so that they could come home. She said it really just clobbered her around the head about how urgent and serious this climate issue is. And for me, it reminded me of that, that theater production and watching the, the video of the floods rising and it suddenly didn't seem quite as fanciful. It, it seemed like, yes, this really is an enormous disruption that's overtaking us and we have less and less time to do what we need to do. The biggest learning for me in this trip was how the people responded. I was, as I mentioned earlier, I was really surprised at how strong the support was. I thought I would have to really hunt for signatures for this petition, but it was quite strong and it was really strong where I had already been working on building the community around it. And that's, I think, where we really have to put our effort now is reaching out to people in whatever circles we move in and figuring out how we can engage and what we can start to work on in every part of our lives. Amazing. It is our tradition to give our guests the last word. So thank you so much for joining us, Laura Stewart, writer, climate organizer, and former oiled field environmental worker, and someone who just, you just heard the epic journey she went on to push this government to take a just transition seriously and to get that legislation you know, in and passed. So thank you so much. And the last word is yours. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to speak with you. And I think that anyone who wants to can contribute to this just by reaching out to people around them, just by making it normal to talk about what we're up against and how we are going to succeed by tackling it together.